welcome to Saints. In this podcast, we'll be discovering and discussing fascinating insights to topics and events found in Saints, the story of the Church of Jesus Christ in the latter days. This new four-volume narrative is a history of the Restoration. You can also read it and all the material we'll be discussing today on LDS.org or on your Gospel Library app. And now, Saints. I'm Ben Godfrey, and today I have two wonderful guests here with me. I have a PhD historian, uh, Dr. Spencer McBride with the Joseph Smith Papers. Hi, thanks for having me. Also have Sarah Eyring with us again today. Sarah has recently read Saints Volume 1 and will be sharing her thoughts and questions in our episode today. Welcome, Sarah. Hi. Thank you both for being with us. Our, our topic today is Chapter 7 of Saints, which is called Fellow Servants. Spencer, why don't you set the scene for us? What is what is chapter seven about a little bit? Yeah, in chapter seven, we kind of see Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery uh, hard at work on the translation of the Book of Mormon. And it's at this time while translating that they start to have questions based on what they read, particularly about uh, baptism, how they should be baptized, um, by what authority, and uh, by reading these passages in the Book of Mormon as they're translating it these questions are impressed upon their minds and upon their hearts. There, there's some real real concern, right? Uh, we, we, Joseph is wondering about himself, but also... I think he's wondering, too, about his older brother, Alvin, whom, uh, who, who died. And when he died, Joseph was told that his brother had gone to hell and that he hadn't been saved. Yeah, and I think a lot of this really ties into the, the whole beginning of Joseph Smith's spiritual quest. When he went into the sacred grove several years earlier... Yes, he was asking which of all the churches to join, but the question that led to that question was a concern for the state of his soul. He wanted to know where he stood in the eyes of God. And so this is the prevailing question behind all that uh, begins as the restoration of the church. And so it makes sense that at this time, that question is still on his mind. Do I need to be baptized? And if so, how? Let's listen to just a, a little clip here from the book um, that talks about this wondering about baptism. Whoso believeth in me and is baptized, the same shall be saved, he declared. They are they who shall inherit the kingdom of God. Before ascending to heaven, he gave righteous men authority to baptize those who believed in him. As they translated, Joseph and Oliver were struck by these teachings. Like his brother Alvin, Joseph had never been baptized, and he wanted to know more about the ordinance and the authority necessary to perform it. So, Spencer, what, what happens? They're, they're reading this. They're translating the Book of Mormon. What do Oliver and Joseph do? Yeah, you know, ultimately, and it happens to be a rainy day on which that they are uh, pondering these questions, but once the rain lets up, they go outside, they go into uh, a secluded place in the woods, and they pray and ask God. And it's in this moment, and we get this account from both Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery, uh, that uh, a heavenly being appears to them, in this case, one who identifies himself as John the Baptist, and teaches them about the need for, the, for priesthood authority, what would become known as the Aaronic Priesthood, uh, and the need to be baptized by that authority. 
I think it's interesting that similar to the way he went to a secluded place in his first prayer for revelation and guidance, they went to a secluded place again. And maybe that is applicable for us today. I don't know. Maybe I should be doing more praying in the woods. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I think we see Joseph as a, as a growing person here, like you say, right? It worked the first time. I had questions in the past, so I prayed and I got answers. Yeah. And so with each subsequent question, he has more and more confidence that if I pray, uh, answers will come. And it's, it's almost this confidence and faith that, that builds upon itself. Let's listen to another little clip here from the book um, about this experience that Oliver and Joseph had. On May 15, 1829, the rains cleared and Joseph and Oliver walked into the woods near the Susquehanna River. Kneeling, they asked God about baptism and the remission of sins. As they prayed, the voice of the Redeemer spoke peace to them, and an angel appeared in a cloud of light. He introduced himself as John the Baptist and placed his hands on their heads. Joy filled their hearts as God's love surrounded them. Upon you, my fellow servants, John declared, in the name of Messiah I confer the priesthood of Aaron, which holds the keys of the ministering of angels and of the gospel of repentance and of baptism by immersion for the remission of sins. So, Spencer, they they have this marvelous experience. And I mean, like right then they got the handbook of instructions and like everything was totally clear on how the priesthood worked, right? Oh, if only that was the case. <laughs> uh, yeah, like so much of, of the restoration... Uh, Joseph Smith and his fellow uh, soon-to-be church leaders are kind of led step by step, shown a little bit, left to figure some things out. At this point, though, they they were given enough information to know that they needed uh, to baptize each other, Uh, and and, and that's the very next step they take. That is so interesting and kind of um, relatable, I think, too, when we, in speaking about praying, when I go for answers, I don't always get them all at once. And the, the handbook isn't always given to me about what I should do next or, or, you know, which path to take. So I love that. But I love, too, that there's obviously heaven's hand in guiding, especially as church, but also individual lives. Yeah, I think it's, it's interesting to think of, of Revelation as being made up of both miraculous moments, but also these prolonged processes of, uh, sure. of discovery. So who else is involved at this time? Um, we have Joseph and Oliver. Um, maybe remind us, where are they working? And uh, and who's lending support while they're doing this work of translation every day? So at this time, Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery are working in Harmony, Pennsylvania, where Joseph and Emma are living close to her family. And there's a growing animosity in the community toward Joseph Smith um, he has some support from Emma's family, uh, and, and maybe that support is what prevented any of this animosity toward him from turning violent. We don't know for sure. Um, but it became apparent that it would be best for Joseph and Emma and then Oliver Cowdery with them to go somewhere else to do the work. And there is a, a man who had become friends with Oliver Cowdery named David Whitmer, who was fascinated by the, the accounts of the heavenly... Uh, visitations Joseph Smith talked about. And he talked with his parents, showed them letters from Joseph uh, Smith and Oliver Cowdery, and the the Whitmers decided they would take uh, Joseph and Emma and Oliver in 
so they could finish the translation process. There's a part of this story that I think a lot of our listeners will probably have never heard before. And uh, it has to do with, with David's involvement. Um, let's, let's take a listen to just a little clip here of this pretty miraculous experience for David. David wanted to go to Harmony immediately, but his father reminded him that he had two days of heavy work to do before he could leave. It was planting season, and David needed to plow 20 acres and enrich the soil with plaster of Paris to help their wheat grow. His father said he ought to pray first to learn if it was absolutely necessary to leave now. David took his father's advice, and as he prayed, he felt the Spirit tell him to finish his work at home before going to Harmony. The next morning, David walked out to the fields and saw rows of dark furrows in ground that had been unplowed the evening before. Exploring the fields further, he saw that about six acres had been plowed overnight, and the plow was waiting for him in the last furrow, ready for him to finish the job. David took this as a sign that it was, it was God telling him he needed to go. I, I grew up on a farm, and I'm telling you, if I woke up in the morning and noticed that someone had done all of my work, <laughs> um, I would have been thrilled. Um, but especially in this moment for David, this was a big deal. How, you know, this is, this is a miracle. So what did this allow him to do? How did this allow him to be more involved in the translation? So he was anxious to go to Harmony to pick up uh, Oliver and, and Joseph and Emma. And his father was essentially saying, well, you have work to do on the farm first. And uh, this meant he could finish his work sooner and go go get his friends. That's awesome. So they, they come back to the Whitmers. And, and where do the Whitmers live? They live in Fayette, New York, which is just about 30 miles east of where uh, the Smith family lived. It's right by the Finger Lakes. It's, it's a beautiful part of the country. And uh, they have a farm there and, and buildings enough to take in these, these guests. So we got, we got these three guests. They, they show up on the, the farm. The farm life is, is a difficult life. There's lots to be done. There's animals to be fed and taken care of, chores to be done. And Joseph and Oliver are, are helping out with all that, right? Not really, though. And, and this is the tricky part because in the family economy of a farm – Every mouth you feed, you expect to also be doing some of the work. There's no end to chores on a farm then or now. And so to have uh, Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery, you know, partaking of the, the food and the, the shelter that the farm provided without actually doing the farm work uh, was something that was generally understood. They were there to translate the Book of Mormon. But... I think it's quite natural for other members of the Whitmer family to be watching this, to be overburdened with their own work and to say, hey, it'd be nice if you guys helped out a bit. I think it's interesting, actually. So I think I read about Mary Whitmer, who's David's mother, right? And she's doing a lot of work on the farm and in in the house. And she actually doesn't complain from what it sounds like, the way it reads. She's not complaining. She just really works hard all day long, probably more than she ever has before for these people um, when they aren't, they can't put the time in as well. But she has kind of an interesting experience and I would tell it, but I'm afraid I'm going to miss some of the details. Can you describe the interesting experience she has that kind of gives her 
hope as she's working so tirelessly. Yeah, and and you know, I imagine for her, she she at least didn't vocalize her complaints, but she was noticing this, feeling particularly uh, weary and overworked um, when she's going about her chores and a stranger approaches, an older looking gentleman, and he introduces himself as Moroni. That's a name that's well known among church members. Right, right. But maybe an appearance that we don't talk about so often. And so the stranger who identifies himself as that Moroni uh, takes his knapsack and pulls from it the gold plates and then proceeds to open them in front of Mary Whitmer page by page so she can see the symbols written thereon, essentially giving her this witness that the plates were real uh, and so that she could uh, presumably go on with confidence knowing, yes, you're overworked, yes, you're tired, but the work that you're facilitating, uh, the work that's being done by Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery is worth the toil, is worth the strife. So this is this is a new story. Um, I hadn't heard about this before. Where where do we learn about uh, Mary Whitmer and this amazing experience? It's a story that is passed down through the Whitmer family. It's a story that they cherish. They cherish their involvement in these early days of the Restoration. Um, of course, it's told in greater detail in the book Saints. And then those who want to read it there and still want to learn more can go to the footnotes and look for other sources, and we'll direct them. Uh, to as many as are available. Let's let's listen to uh, this little piece from Saints about Mary's experience. Mary had little time to relax herself, and the added work and the strain placed on her were hard to bear. One day, while she was out by the barn where the cows were milked, she saw a gray-haired man with a knapsack slung across his shoulder. His sudden appearance frightened her, but as he approached, he spoke to her in a kind voice that set her at ease. My name is Moroni, he said. You have become pretty tired with all the extra work you have to do. He swung the knapsack off his shoulder, and Mary watched as he started to untie it. You have been very faithful and diligent in your labors, he continued. It is proper, therefore, that you should receive a witness that your faith may be strengthened. Moroni opened his knapsack and removed the gold plates. He held them in front of her, and turned their pages so she could see the writings on them. After he turned the last page, he urged her to be patient and faithful as she carried the extra burden a little longer. He promised she would be blessed for it. I think that's a great story, especially because lots of us are trying to serve each other and serve the Lord. Sometimes we feel a little burdened, overburdened, and it's sweet to think that there are witnesses from Heavenly Father um, obvious witnesses and, and even all around us, some that we might have to seek a bit more to pay attention to, but that prove to us that what we're doing is worth it and that it's for a fantastic end. And that is the, the happiness of all those around us and our own. Most of us are not going to be in the limelight. We're going to play our small role. And I, I, I take particular comfort like Mary that, you know, I might just be carrying the milk bucket. And that's fine. That's that's my job. I'll carry the milk bucket. But Heavenly Father witnesses to each of us in, in the ways that we need to kind of sustain our faith. And I, I just love that that coming out in saints in a way that I'd never heard before. Um, Spencer, tell us uh, about the 
the restoration of the Aaronic priesthood. Are there other are there other parts of the story here that our listeners may not have been familiar with, or that uh, that you'd like to point out to us? So yeah, once they received the priesthood, they recognized that this was an essential step in the restoration of the church, in the restoration of ordinances such as baptism by immersion. But the priesthood as we know it today, the Aaronic priesthood with different offices within, that was something that they weren't uh, instructed in in great detail. And so we even see with the Aaronic priesthood restored in 1829, it's in the subsequent months and years as the church is organized that they come to understand how it's going to function on a day-to-day basis in the church. So again, we see these miraculous moments um, that are then followed up by a very step-by-step process, so mu- only so much revealed at one time. The whole line upon line, precept on precept. Sometimes I, in my own life, I'm like, uh, I'm tired of waiting for line upon line. You know what I mean? Totally. Yeah. It's, it's hard, and I'm sure for Joseph it was. This was a, they, they got enough to move forward. And it's kind of the same for us, don't you think? Yeah, definitely. And actually, it makes me think that it's nice that the narrative is fast-paced and that we get through kind of a lot in only so much reading. But you do have to remember that it takes place over uh, a lot of years. And um, yeah, so that that is a great point that, of course, miraculous things can happen. But sometimes it's a little slower than we than we plan. The story of Mary is uh, a story of a witness in a miraculous way that many of us didn't know, but there were other witnesses um, of the Book of Mormon and of these plates. Tell us a little bit about that story. Yeah, and I think this is a story familiar to uh, many, if not all, church members, is that following the Book of Mormon translation process but preceding its publication, Joseph Smith was able to show the book to three witnesses, then to eight witnesses. And we read their testimonies in, in the Book of Mormon itself. But I think one of the neatest aspects that comes out of the book Saints that's really highlighted is the way Joseph Smith felt. It wasn't just fulfilling some commandment that he would show it to three and then to eight witnesses, but he felt this real sense of relief that this burden he had carried uh, of having seen the plates and trying to assure everyone they're real, they're real, I have them, I'm translating them, and now all of a sudden there were 11 others to share that burden with them. And the way he expressed it to his parents of having this great burden taken off his shoulders and to have help, I think is, is something that uh, people then and now can relate to that feeling. So how were these three witnesses and eight witnesses chosen? Did he decide who he would share it with? Did Heavenly Father direct him? to which people he should share it with, and who were those people, actually? Yeah, my understanding is he, he did it um, by revelation, but also that these individuals were friends and associates who had helped him along the way. The three witnesses were Oliver Cowdery, Martin Harris, and David Whitmer. And, and so they had an experience where they prayed together and were shown the plates. And you can read in greater detail about two saw it at once, then Martin Harris saw it separately. Uh, That's an important and fascinating story in and of itself. And I think there's something to this, though, why Heavenly Father would choose these men, these associates, uh, to see the plates. Because they had been, they had believed Joseph Smith from early on. 
that supported him early on. And I think that's something that Joseph Smith really had going for him, is he had a family who believed him. He had a family that if he came and said, I had this spiritual experience, they would not only believe him, but they would encourage him to act on it. And he had friends who would do the same. And as we know, life would not be easy for him. But in moments like this, it was good for him to have friends and family uh, who could support him. So I think in a, in a previous episode, I mentioned um, that I, as a youth, was in this Clarkston pageant. It talks about Martin Harris and, and, uh, and his experience with Joseph. Whenever I read the three witnesses, um, I, the line from the, the play comes to my mind, which is Martin's line of, he, it comes from the historical record, "'Tis enough, tis enough, mine eyes have beheld." And I love that. I love that moment when Martin finally gets to see and, and he knows this experience that he has and that David Whitmer and Oliver Cowdery have is a miraculous one. It's an angelic experience. Can you tell us, is that the same kind of experience that the eight witnesses have or is, is it different? And if so, how? Yeah, based on, on the historical records we have with the eight witnesses, it was Joseph Smith actually showing them the plates, whereas with the three witnesses, there was an angelic visit um, where they were shown the plates. So yeah, this would be the difference, I guess, Joseph Smith himself actually showing them uh, the record. So there's another visit from an angel in, described in this chapter, and that's when Moroni comes to take the plates away from Joseph again. And I don't know that this is the first time that this has happened. I think it happened one time before when he was maybe disobedient about keeping his eyes directly on the plates. Was that... Is this a similar situation? Well, this is actually a much more positive experience for Joseph Smith than that previous one, because now he's returning the plates because he's fulfilled his task, he's fulfilled his work. And so it's a joyous occasion, and the angel takes them back. And what we are left with then is the Book of Mormon manuscript, but a Book of Mormon manuscript that would include the testimony of the three witnesses and the eight witnesses. And throughout the rest of Joseph Smith's lives, people would ask him, what happened to the plates? What happened to the plates? Uh, and the answer could, would always be for people to go to the book itself. And if they still doubted, look at the testimony of these witnesses and ultimately make it a matter of faith to read and to pray and to come to a knowledge of the, the truthfulness of the record uh, for themselves. And so, yeah, this is a very exciting moment for Joseph Smith. And it's also a pivotal one in the faith journey of the men and women and children who would come after, that they would have this record and they'd have to read it and come to know it for themselves. I, I imagine in some sense it's, it's this, this great triumph that the, the manuscript is finished but it's got to be a relief too, honestly. Like, it has been a nightmare. People have been hunting him down. You know, he, he's he's being chased, and just to be able to say, I don't, I don't have that anymore. I, I've given that back to the angel, and and by the way, there's a book, and and that's what it was all about anyway. It was never about the gold. It was about the restoration of these records and bringing back God's word to his people everywhere. Yeah, it was about what was on the plates and not so much the plates themselves. You're right. Thank you so much, uh, Spencer, for being here with us today. Thank you, Sarah. And as always, thank you for tuning in. I'm Ben Godfrey. Thanks for joining us today for Saints. And don't forget to read more of this historical narrative on LDS.org or on your Gospel Library app. 
Join us again for our next episode, where we'll once again discover fascinating insights of church history found in Saints, the story of the Church of Jesus Christ in the Latter Days. See you next time.